Hi and welcome to another one of the Branch Online Sermons, thinking about what it means to live as God's church. I remember when I worked as an engineer, the organisation that I worked for went through the process of determining its mission and vision statement. I have to admit that at the time I thought it was kind of funny that uh, we had to sit down and work out what it was that we were supposed to be doing. The organisation had been going for a very long time. It was concerning to think that we may not know what it was that we were actually supposed to be doing. But it's quite surprising, really, how easy it is for us to forget what your so-called core business is. And it's easy to find yourself doing things that actually aren't really that important. And although we might uh, think that vision and mission statements are a kind of modern phenomenon. Uh, actually, people have been using them for years. It's just that they tended to call them mottos or something like that rather than mission and vision statements. The school that I went to had the motto, all knowledge through Christ, which pretty well sums up what it was that they were on about. Uh, the university that I went to, Sydney University, had the motto, Sidere mens iata mutato, which being Latin kind of is not that great at communicating what the core vision of the institution is. But it apparently means something like the constellation is changed, the disposition is the same, which probably doesn't help that much either in communicating what the university is about. But apparently it means something like uh, the traditions of the older universities in the Northern Hemisphere are continued here in the South. The constellation has changed, but the disposition is the same. We're doing the same thing, even though the stars have changed. And again, that, even though it's confusing, pretty well sums up the purpose of the university. Well, vision and mission statements uh, can be helpful in business and they can be helpful in the church too. And in fact, Jesus himself gives us some pretty good summaries as a church to help us know what it is that we're supposed to be doing, what the most important things that we can be doing really are. And today, what we are going to be doing is looking at two of the most important things that Jesus says uh, as we think about the question, what does the church do? Today, we're going to be thinking about the principles of what the church does, and then in the in the two weeks ahead, we'll be fleshing out how those things work out in the practice and in the life of the church. But the first of the summaries that uh, Jesus summaries that we're going to be looking at is in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 to 40. If you haven't read that, you might like to stop the video now and read that. It's not particularly hard for us, I don't think, to work out what the most important thing for us to be doing as a church is because Jesus, Jesus tells us what it is uh, in the first passage that we're looking at, that passage from Matthew 22, someone comes up to Jesus and really asks him, Jesus, what is the most important thing that we should be doing? And Jesus says, in reply, the most important thing that you can be doing is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The most important thing that a church should be doing is loving God with every fiber of our being, with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. 
When God first formed his great community of saved people, his church, if you like, in the Old Testament, it was after he had brought them out of Egypt. And he said to them in Exodus 19, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's just another way of saying that their great purpose in being saved by God was to live before God and to live for God. How are they to do that? Well, God spells that out for them in the next uh, chapter, in Exodus chapter 20. God gives them the Ten Commandments, if you like, the ten dot points, the kind of outline, the shape of what it means to live before God and for God. God gives to them the shape in those Ten Commandments of what it means to live in God's community under God's rule and provision. And what Jesus has done in the two great commandments is kind of summarize those 10 dot points even more to give us two dot points. He gives us two commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So the great goal of the church then, first and foremost, is that first commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. That's what it's all about. That's what we're doing now as you sit there listening uh, to this sermon. That's why we do other things in church like growth groups and uh, why we meet as Christians to pray. It's why we read and study the Bible. That's why we read Christian books and organize fellowship lunches and fellowship dinners. The reason that we do that is so that we might grow in our love for the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, or at least that ought to be why we're doing those things. Like any good mission statement, it's good to keep going back to it and asking the question, is that actually what we're doing? Are we loving God? Are our Sunday gatherings about loving God and growing in our love for God? Are our growth groups about loving God and growing in our love for God? Are our evangelistic efforts uh, in the community about loving God. But the thing is, too often we evaluate the church on other grounds. How We ask questions like, how well is the church doing in loving me? Or how well is the church doing in loving my children? Or how good is the kids program? Or how good is the music? Or how good is the building? Or whatever it might be. But think about it. If the key criteria by which you evaluate the church is, how well is the church loving me? Then that means that what you're doing is making yourself God rather than letting God be God. If the chief criteria by which you evaluate the church is, how well uh, is this church fitting in with my kids? Then that means that what you're doing is making your children God. If the chief criteria by which you evaluate the church is the music, then that means that you're making music God. But instead, we need to ask ourselves, is our church, instead of asking those other questions, does it love me, you know, does it love my children, is the music good enough? Instead of asking those questions, we need to ask ourselves the diagnostic question. Is our church a place where people love God? with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And derivatively then, are you a person who loves God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Is 
God at the center of everything that you do? Uh, do you find yourself constantly thinking about God? Do you find yourself constantly reordering your life to do what you know delights God? Do the people around you do that? Do your children do that? Do you train your children in doing that? Think about someone who falls in love. What happens? <laughs> what happens is that their life uh, falls apart. Well, not really, but what happens is, is that they they become, if you like, obsessed. They fall in love with that person and they think about that other person all the time. And I, when I say all the time, I mean all the time. Uh, they want to spend all their time with the, with the other person. And often I mean all their time they want to spend with the other person. And they want to do everything that they can to please and delight in that person that they love. And really, that's what God is asking us to do with him. Uh, God wants us to love him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul and all our strength. That is an extraordinary thing for God to ask us to do. But that is what he wants from us. That is what he desires from us. And so the question is, how do you go with that? How do you go with loving God with all that you are? How do you think that we do that? go with that as a church, with loving God, with all that we are. And let me ask you this other question, and I want you to think very carefully about your answer. Could you give up everything else that you think is important in the life of the church, whatever that is, whether it's kids ministry or youth ministry or first-rate music or first-rate preaching or whatever it is, could you give up those things if the church was a church that loved God with all its being? If the answer to that question is no, then you haven't understood the mission of the church. If those things are more important to you than a church which loves God with all that it is, people who love God with all that they are, if those other things are more important than that, then you have not understood the mission of the church. Too easily our motives slip to more individualistic concerns. The church becomes about me feeling good or me being helped through my struggles rather than the heart of the church being about worshipping, loving, adoring and serving the God of heaven and earth, the God who has bought our lives at the cost of his own son. When that disappears from the center of the church, the church dies. So the first and most important part of what the church does is to love God with all our being. The second thing that Jesus mentions is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, the best place to go in order to understand what it means uh, to love our neighbor is to Luke's gospel because in chapter 10, an expert in the law comes to Jesus and asks the question that we want to know the answer to. That is, who is my neighbor? And in response to that question, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. The shocking answer of that parable is that the neighbor of the Jewish man is his despised enemy. That is a Samaritan. So too, Jesus says something similar in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. 
God causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says we are to love our enemies. In fact, Jesus calls us to be like God in that. God loves his own people, the church with a special love, but Jesus says God also sends uh, his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. Uh, in the same way, the church ought to imitate God in that. The church ought to be a community of people who imitate the love of God, and not just for their friends, but for their enemies as well. That is, Jesus tells us, one of the key ways that we operate as salt and light in the world. One of the key ways that people talk about evangelism is often in terms of what's called friendship evangelism. And I understand what people mean by that, that is getting to know people and then in the context of that, sharing the gospel with them. But in the context of this command to love our neighbours and even love our enemies, I wonder if a more helpful idea is the idea of love evangelism. That is, telling people the gospel in the context of showing love. Now, why is that an important distinction? It's an important distinction, I think, because you don't have to be friends with someone in order to love them. Uh, in fact, Jesus is saying that we ought to be loving people who aren't our friends. Jesus calls us to love our enemies as well. Maybe we should be doing enemies evangelism. Now, that might mean for us helping a work colleague who is consistently undermining you at work. Uh, it might mean helping them by helping them with some of the work they have to do, helping them carry something to the car, inviting them over to your house uh, for a barbie or something like that, even though they, they uh, don't really um, appreciate you. It might mean uh, helping a neighbour, a neighbour who always seems to be at war with you, who's always complaining about you to the council or whoever it might be. It might be giving someone a lift somewhere. Uh, it can be all kinds of things, but we ought to extend our thinking beyond just loving our friends, Jesus says, but to loving our enemies. I read a story a number of years ago about an atheist in Texas, and he'd run up a uh, he got himself into financial difficulty by bringing lawsuits uh, against religious imagery. Or I don't know if that was what caused his financial trouble, but he had a history of bringing lawsuits and he found himself uh, in financial trouble. Uh, and one of the local churches, despite his opposition uh, to them in the past, one of the local churches banded together to provide money for his groceries and medical treatment and so on. And he was completely overwhelmed by that uh, to the extent that for a, a month or two, he, if you like, converted uh, to Christianity. Uh, but a few months after that, he, he returned to his atheism and unfortunately he returned to his bitterness to God. But regardless of the outcome uh, it's a powerful reminder, I think, of Jesus' call to love our enemies, not just our friends. Uh, and we as God's people uh, in our corporate life, but especially in our individual life, can be doing that, loving our enemies, not just our friends. But there's another way in which the New Testament applies the command to love our neighbour. In the first place, it's uh, applied to our enemies, but it's also applied to the church. 
Uh, here are some of the words, for instance, that Paul addresses to the church in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved as God's church, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another uh, if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul calls the church to love each other deeply, uh, and you find that command scattered throughout the whole New Testament. It's not just here in Colossians, but it's throughout the whole New Testament. In fact, in 1 John, one of the great tests of whether we really belong to Christ is whether we love our fellow Christians. That's the great test of genuine Christian faith. There is evidently a priority in the Bible with respect to love for God's people. Paul writes in Galatians that as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, to love everyone, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In other words, one of the special ways that love for our neighbour is worked out is through love for the church. Now, that doesn't mean that we love the church to the exclusion of those outside the church. Clearly, the Bible is not saying that. Clearly, Jesus is not saying that. Clearly, Paul is not saying that in Galatians 6. But, it, what, it, but what it does mean is that, that loving the church, that loving people in the church, has primary importance in the Christian life. Now, at one level, I think that's kind of obvious. Of course, we should love the church more because the church is the body of Christ. They're the people who are part of our family. They're the ones in whom the Spirit of God lives. Of course, there's a unique and special love between Christians, and there ought to be. But at another level, you might think that uh, having uh, that love for the church being sort of a more important thing is a bit strange. After all, surely loving people outside the church is the harder thing to do. Surely loving people in the church is a bit of a cop-out. But actually, it isn't. And that's because frequently the most difficult people for us to love are actually those who are closest to us. That's because the deeper the love we have for someone the more costly it is and the more painful it is for us to love. That's because the, the, the deeper we love someone, uh, the more it tends to expose our own sin and the more it tends to expose their sin. It's, it's actually not that difficult in some ways to love somebody who you've never met before, uh, whose foibles you don't understand and who doesn't, uh, you know, and someone who doesn't know anything about your weaknesses and errors or, or past or history. It's much more difficult often to love people who do know that, who do know your faults and flaws, who, uh, um, who have had to live with that and maybe have to live with the consequence of your past sins. Uh, so often we're much more hurt too by the betrayal of those people who are closest to us than we are by the betrayal of people that we hardly know. Uh, we're more hurt by the betrayal of a family member or a friend than we're hurt by the betrayal of someone that we've never met. And that's true in the church as well. We can often accept rejection from society at large. We kind of expect that maybe. But rejection and betrayal by the people in the church can be absolutely devastating. So you might give yourself to serving others in the church, in some ministry, 
and then someone comes and absolutely unloads on you because they didn't like what you did. You'd been giving yourself in love. Uh, you'd, you'd invested time and in thinking about what you could do and trying to do it in the best way that you can. And they come and, and, and just unload. Uh, or maybe you invest loads of time in discipling and loving somebody and then they come and tell you that they're leaving the church because uh, no one cares about them. Or maybe you come to church faithfully week after week and you try to get to know people, but it's just really, really hard and you feel let down by that. To continue to love people then and to give yourself to people in spite of that is immensely costly. And yet, that is exactly what God calls us to do. Think about it. What did it cost Jesus to love the church? It cost him his life. He loved us, and we put him to death. And if it cost Jesus his life to love the church, why would we think that it should cost us anything less? In fact, the Bible says that we should love the church and love each other in the same way that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Loving the church will cost us our life. So the two great commandments map out for us three great loves. Love for God with all our being, love for God's people, and love for the world. But aside from those two great commandments, there's another thing that is often rightly identified as a key part of what the church does. And that is what is called the Great Commission. You find the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. And if you haven't read that, it would be good to stop the video and to read that now. In that passage, Jesus gives his disciples, the first 12 disciples, and through them, all other disciples, you and me as well, he gives to his disciples the task to make more disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What is the task of the church? Well, it's to love God with all our, all our being. It's to love the church. It's to love our neighbor. But as well as that, it is to make disciples of all nations. That is, it is to speak to people about what God has done in Jesus. It's to plead with them to turn away from their sin and to turn to the living God. It's to plead with them to put their trust in Jesus and to give up their lives and come under the loving and gracious provision and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to teach people to obey everything that uh, Jesus has commanded us. Now, in the next two weeks, we'll be thinking a bit more about how we do that as a church. But for the moment, for today, I want to think about how those things fit together. How do the two great commandments fit with the Great Commission? Now, that's important for us to know and to understand, because if we don't understand that, we'll go badly astray. Uh, if we don't understand how they relate, we can end up badly distorting the gospel and the task of the church. So how do the Great Commandments and the Great Commission fit together? Well, they fit together in that the great goal of the Great Commission is to win more people, if you like, 
to the Great Commandments. The goal of the Great Commission is to win more people to loving, adoring and serving God in Jesus. It's to win people to loving their neighbour as themselves. The great goal of the Great Commission is the Great Commandments. Long after everything else has passed away, long after the need for mission has ended when Jesus returns, long after the task of the church in taking the gospel to the nations has ended, long after that, we will still be loving God with all our heart and loving each other. We will be doing that into eternity. But for the moment, there is an urgent priority in the Great Commission. The great goal is the great commandments, but there is, if you like, a temporal, a, a present urgency in the great commission. That is because people must hear the gospel in order that they can spend their eternity loving God with all their heart and loving their neighbours themselves. In order for people to come to know and to love God and to love each other, they must hear the gospel. People must hear in this life, they must hear us explain to them that they are sinners under the judgment of God. They must hear that they are God's enemies in need of forgiveness. They must hear that that forgiveness is available to them through Jesus' death. And they must hear that the way that they receive that forgiveness is through turning away from their sin and putting their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless people hear that message from us in this lifetime, they cannot be saved. Please understand that loving people is not evangelism. Sure, loving people is our responsibility before God. We will have to give account to God on the last day for how we have loved or failed to love people. People will not mysteriously absorb the gospel by us being nice to them. They'll absorb the gospel by us speaking to them and teaching them about God, sin and salvation. They will not understand the gospel by us giving them money, even though that might be a good thing to do. They will not understand the gospel by us sharing food with them, even though that might be our responsibility before God. They will only understand the gospel by us opening our mouths and communicating to them that they are sinners under the judgment of God in need of the forgiveness of God through Jesus and that they must turn and repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Great Commission. And the Great Commandments are not just, we need to understand the goal of the Great Commission. The Great Commandments are not just the goal of the Great Commission, but we also need to understand that the Great Commandments are the foundation of the Great Commission as well. That is, if we truly love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, then we will be desperate for people to know him and be reconciled to him through turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. If we love God, we will preach the gospel. Sometimes we can be tempted to think that we need to, if you like, put loving God on hold in order that we might preach the gospel. But actually, the more that we grow in loving God, the more that our love for God expands to consume all of who we are, evangelism will just flow out of us. We will not be able to keep our mouths closed. 
because every fiber of our being will be directed towards our love for God and the love that others ought to show God as well. Love for God, the great commandment, is the foundation of the Great Commission. But also, love for our neighbor is the foundation of the Great Commission as well. If we truly love others, we will not be content to just stay silent and hope somehow mysteriously that they'll understand the gospel by us being nice to them. But we'll love them by speaking the uncomfortable truth to them. We'll do that even to our enemies, not just our friends. We'll do that to our enemies, not just our family. We'll tell them with tears in our eyes that they are sinners in need of salvation. We'll risk our relationship with them because we love them more deeply than our relationship with them. Our great hope for them is for them to know the salvation that is in Jesus. And so with tears in our eyes, we'll tell them that they are sinners in need of God's salvation, but that God is a God who welcomes humble and repentant sinners who turn to him through Jesus. What is the mission of the church? What is it the church must do? What is at the heart of the core of what it means to be the people of God? The mission of the church is to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, with all our being. It's to love God's people. It's to love our neighbor, to love even our enemies. And it's to bring others to knowing and loving God by going and making Jesus known, proclaiming the good news of who he is. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great vision that you have set out for us in the Great Commandments and in the Great Commission. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful vision of people who love you with all their being. And Lord, we want to acknowledge that so often we are not in that place. And yet, Lord, our heart longs for that. Our heart longs to be in that place, to be people who are consumed by you, by your glory, by your greatness, by your wonder, by your love. Lord, we pray that that would drive us, that that would motivate us, that that would occupy all our attention and every decision that we make would be driven by that love. Lord, we pray that for that not just as individuals, but as a church, as the branch, that, that people in Launceston might say, well, well, their church services are rubbish, but they love people. They, they love God. They love God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and strength. And they love each other. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love each other deeply from the heart, to serve each other as God's people, uh, to to serve each other in costly ways, help us to love each other by forgiving each other past hurts, help us to love each other by working for the good of each other, even when it costs us. Lord, help us to love each other by patiently bearing with each other. Lord, by patiently bearing with each other's uh, idiosyncrasies and strangeness, by uh, bearing with each other's sins and weaknesses. Uh, by bearing with each other's immaturity. Lord, help us to, to love each other as uh, God's people, uh, 
so that the world might know that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to love our neighbor. Help us to love those around us, whoever they are, whether they're our best friends, whether they're our family members, or whether they're our worst enemies. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love them deeply. And in the context of love, to be able to speak the truth of who you are to them. Lord, we pray that as we are driven and motivated by love for you, that as we are driven and motivated for, uh, by love for our neighbor, Lord, that we would go out and that we would tell people the truth of where they stand with you, that they are sinners in need of Christ, but that you have sent the Lord Jesus so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Lord, so often we're afraid to say that. We're afraid of what it will cost us, our reputation, what people will think of us, our, our place at work, uh, that it might cost us the relationship with our family member. But Lord, we pray that we would love them so much that we would be on our knees in prayer for them and that we would be weeping as we share with them the good news uh, of who you are and what you've done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please do these things, not for our sake not even for the sake of those that we love, but do it for your sake, for your glory, that the world might know that you alone are God. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.